Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Renaissance. Really glad to be with you guys today. Uh, I grew up at Shiloh Baptist Church right outside of Yonkers. Um, my mother was the church clerk on Sundays. She would come up to the front and go through the entire bulletin uh, to make sure there was order established in that house. Uh, my dad was a deacon. Uh, he wore brown suits. Uh, he stopped in the 90s. He stopped wearing brown suits in the 90s. Uh, he would walk down the aisle after service to reach out his hand for anyone who wanted to join the church or to become a Christian. So since my parents were so involved, it meant that my brother and I had to be involved. And we were junior ushers, and we took that job very seriously. Uh, we had a couple of job descriptions. One, uh, we had tissues for anybody who was chewing gum, right? You ain't going to be chewing no gum in the Lord's house. Praise Jesus. Uh, during offering time, we would take people's money, and then some people would lean over to you to get change. So someone would hand you a $100 bill and say, let me get 98 back. And you're like, bro, you had a knot. You could have at least given 10. But by far, the biggest and most important thing that you would do during the day was to guard the door and make sure nobody came in the service before the choir came in. At 11 o'clock, the choir would line up, and at 11.01, they would march in, so we've come this far by faith. And my job, whenever someone came from the outside, was to hold up my, my hand with my white glove on. Y'all don't know nothing about no white gloves. <laughs> to let people know that worship was just about to start, and they had to wait on the outside until after the choir had marched in. Now, unintentionally, growing up in life, uh, it taught me that worship was something that happened on Sundays from 11 till 1, maybe 1.30 if they had testimony time. But worship was something that happened at church for a given time period, and the rest of the week, it was basically you lived your life. So there was worship, and then there was life. And I've struggled ever since then to really merge those two fields. Now, to be very clear, uh, coming together in church services uh, is an amazingly powerful thing. Some of you guys uh, have rekindled your relationship with God based on a church service, and uh, some of the most impactful and amazing moments in your life have come for a lot of us, myself included, in a church service. So I don't want to dismiss the power of coming together for a service, but worship is much bigger than two hours on a Sunday. Uh, worship actually touches every single aspect of your life, whether you know it or not. Every one of us in this room, even if you don't consider yourself a religious person, worships. At every minute of every single day, there is something that you have centered in your life, and that shapes everything about you. If I were to tell you that this person worships money, um, what you would see from that person's life would be not a detachment where they um, liked money on one side and they kind of lived their life separately, but that everything they would do would flow out of their love for money. Same is true for someone worshipped their body. They wouldn't just go to the gym, um, the same schedule I go, which is once every two, three months. Uh, <laughs> they would be in that joint as soon as it opened, and they wouldn't miss a day. They would orient their life around their diet, their shopping, their spending, their sleeping. Everything would flow out of that one center of what they found most valuable. Now, we are in a season called Christmas, and uh, the word Christmas essentially means Christ's Mass, the worship of Christ. 
And it's a season that churches and Christians have traditionally for centuries and centuries spent reflecting on who Jesus was to hopefully make Jesus center in our lives, that Jesus would be that thing that actually is our functional place of worship. Uh, when you look at Scripture, you don't see worship described as a two-hour slot on a, on a given day of the week, uh, but something much different. There's a Scripture in Romans 12 and 1 written by a man named Paul. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship from the first time it was introduced in Scripture wasn't about just an activity. It wasn't just about words that you said or sang. Worship was what you are building your life around, what you are giving yourself to. Uh, years ago, when I was in North Carolina, um, I had a car, and I, and I loved, I loved, loved, loved this car. Part of the biggest difficulty of me moving to the city was getting rid of my car because I loved cars. And every Saturday morning, I would detail that joint. Like, washing is for amateurs. I would detail mine. <laughs> And um, Saturday morning, I would go outside with my bucket and all my tools, and I would wash that car for about an hour, two hours, uh, and that car really did change everything about me. I wouldn't park near people in a lot. I didn't want anybody banging my doors. Uh, I wouldn't drive in the rain unless I really needed to because I didn't want like the dirt and debris kicking up on my car. And when I would wash it, um, I had some rims on it. They was 20s. They was 10s, but I kept them clean. Um, <laughs> The way the rims had to be cleaned, you couldn't just use a sponge and like go, go over on the outside. There was a crevice that only Q-tips could get. So I would have a bin of Q-tips where I would make sure the car was perfectly spotlessly clean. And one day my brother said this to me, I don't know if he remembers this. He says, man, you worship that car. Now, to a certain degree, he was kind of right that I was orienting my entire life around this stupid car to keep it clean that I was spending hours and hours washing and detailing and Q-tipping the wheels, and I was avoiding driving during certain periods because that car actually became, to a certain degree, the centerpiece of how I was living my life around. When Scripture talks about worship, when we talk about worshiping God or worshiping Jesus, uh, in, in essence, the, the whole theme of worship is truly what you are actually building your life around. Now, what we orient our lives around is generally what you and I worship. Now, generally, since that's the truth, it makes sense that idolatry or false worship is when we place something else in the center of our lives that God himself was meant to inhabit. And idolatry is not a concept that belongs in history books for people 3,000 years ago, but it is every bit as present a danger for you and me today, that you and I would put something else in the center of our lives, that that would be the thing that we love the most. And we would live our lives based on pursuing, nurturing, uh, growing something in our lives besides God himself. We take good things and we make them ultimate things. Now, there's an ancient African theologian. His name is St. Augustine. Um, and he had a quote on, uh, on idolatry, that, uh, something I've been chewing on this whole week. And it really uh, hit me hard. Uh, he, this is the way he describes idolatry and sin. He says, the essence of sin is disordered love. Now, in essence, what he's saying is sin and idolatry is not that you don't love God, it's that you don't love God first. It's putting something in the first slot that belonged in the fourth slot. 
one of the ways that we see this the most clearly, especially in New York City, is in career. Now, it's a, a great prayer request that all of us would love our jobs. Um, it's something that is amazing when I talk to someone and they tell me, yo, my job is amazing, I love my boss, I love my coworkers. Um, everybody is really cool. Um, if that's the case, if everybody is cool, then you're probably the weird one that everybody talks about. But they love their job, and, they, and they're ranting and raving about it, and that's a good thing. That good thing becomes a bad thing if, instead of loving your job fourth, you loved it first, and you put it over your family, for example. Now, the problem wouldn't be that you love your job, but if you were giving your family and your friendships scraps off the table so that you could pursue your job, what you would see is fracture in all of your relationships. And it's not because you didn't love your family. It's, because you, it's not because you loved your job. That's a good thing. It's just that you didn't love things in the right order. And essentially, what Augustine is saying is this. Uh, the essence of sin in our lives, the essence of idolatry, uh, what makes worship difficult is not that you and I don't love Jesus. It's that we don't love him first. Now, in this season, in this series of worship, uh, here's what our, our, my hope and our prayer is. Uh, similar to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I beat my body into subjection, uh, that we would force our necks and turn our eyes and look up at God, and we would spend a season anticipating and, and looking at Christ so that he would return to be the centerpiece of our lives. Too many of us um, have other things, and, and this is very true of myself. Uh, so often I see, even in, in my own life and in, in, in career, that I spend so much time um, on everything but God sometimes. I spend so much time thinking and strategizing about the things that this church needs and not necessarily on what my first love is. Jesus approached Peter after Peter had one of his most colossal failures, and Jesus' question to Peter uh, was, Peter, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus was trying to realign Peter's heart back to him because he knew Peter's problem wasn't that he was scared or he was just fearful. He knew that Peter had a disordered loves. And if we're going to have a walk with God that is robust, that is life-giving, we would do ourselves very well to make sure that Christ remains at the center of everything that we do if you have placed your faith in Jesus. Uh, Jesus has some pretty sobering words for us in Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Now, this scripture always humbles me because what Jesus is saying is people can have genuine, real, authentic, public expression of faith, and all of their activity amounts to nothing. Years ago, when I was in seminary, uh, I took a preaching class, and I got a C in it, which might explain a lot of uh, this. <laughs> but the professor told me at the beginning of the semester, hey, Every week, you have to hand in this prayer journal. And every Friday at noon, there was a prayer journal that was due. We had to just basically pick a scripture and write a paragraph of how we would turn that into a sermon. I was busy, so I figured, I'm not going to do this every Friday. I'll just wait till the end of the semester, go to the library, and just spend a day and a half just knocking out all of my assignments from all of my classes. Got to the end of the semester, and a teacher told me, Jordan, read the fine print in the syllabus. That assignment was due every Friday at noon, and since you didn't turn it in, you've been getting zeros on those prayer journals. 
Now, that was about 25% of our grade. And he told me, it doesn't matter what you do in this class, the highest grade you will get is a C. And I went to him and I begged him. I said, listen, instead of one paragraph, I'll write two. I'll write a whole, I'll give you a whole sermon series, bro. I'll give you everything that you could ever do. And I'll put so much time into it. And I'll put so much effort into it. He says, Jordan, you can write a novel, bro. Everything you do will be in vain. It wasn't the intensity of my effort. It wasn't the amount of time I spent in it. It wasn't how much energy and and effort I put into those prayer journals. It would have been in vain. And here's what Jesus is saying. If the order of your loves is out of order, then all of the public expression in the entire world would be in vain. The greatest singer, the greatest worship team, the best sermons, the most amazing whatever would amount to zero, absolutely zero, if the order of our hearts was off. I think we would do very well to spend some time analyzing and confessing and uh, questioning how is it that you and I can make sure that we put Jesus Christ at the center of our lives and answering the question, not do we love God, but do we love God first? I got to be honest, there's a couple of obstacles that you're going to face just like me um, as we try to make God the centerpiece of our lives. And to be perfectly candid, I don't think this is something that I do a fantastic job at. I kind of feel like every single day, um, it's almost like a car whose uh, steering column is off, that we're constantly being pulled in one direction or another. Uh, Our direction is never set to straight. This is not something that you do one day and you fix the problem and you button it up and all of a sudden you go back and you never think about it ever again. But rather, this is a daily approach that you and I take to surrender our lives in such a way that God actually truly becomes that center from our lives. Uh, I want to look at a portion of Scripture today that is a familiar text. Uh, if you have been to church during Christmas time, you probably have heard um, this Scripture read at some point. Uh, and this Scripture is amazing because I think it shows us a mirror to ourselves, and it shows us some of the obstacles that we'll face in trying to make Jesus the center of our lives Uh, You might have read it before. It comes from Matthew, the second chapter, um, and verses 1 through 3 will start. It says, After Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply, deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, King Herod was a character in Scripture. Um, If you look at his life, uh, you'll see him doing some of the most horrific things. Uh, He was a really jealous and paranoid king. Uh, So, anybody who came in contact with him, if he felt like you were threatening him, he would not just kill you, he would kill your entire family. Uh, There was a joke um, in in ancient Greek that it was better to be one of his pigs than it was to be one of his sons because he didn't eat pork, but he had had some of his kids killed. He was so um, crazy that anybody who came in between him and his absolute reign would have to go. What does Herod have to do with you? Here's what the arrival of Jesus signified for Herod and what it signifies for you and me. It signifies a brand new kingdom coming into town. It signifies not just a co-pilot, 
not just someone riding shotgun in a car with you, but someone who brings their own car and their own snacks and their own aux cord for their iPod. They're going to control everything <laughs> the entire journey. And that this wasn't going to be a partnership. This was going to be a brand new king coming in with a brand new rule. And one of the biggest obstacles that I face, and I think that you're going to face also, is valuing our kingdom over God's kingdom. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is not a word that we use too often today. Kingdom is essentially the way that you think things should be done. And to come into contact with Jesus, not the imaginary Jesus, but the real Jesus, is to come into contact with someone who will uproot and up in and call us to do things that you had no intention of ever doing otherwise. Now, here's something that's true about me that might be true about you. I always prefer control over uncertainty. I always prefer independence over dependence. I would always choose to do things my way rather than doing things Jesus' way. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he started the prayer with a line that says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And to pray those words, your kingdom come, means that our kingdom has to go. Your will be done. And to pray those words means that my will, the things that my desires and the direction of my life is being handed over to Jesus. Now, that is a deeply, deeply upsetting thing. And one of the things I fear is that um, what robs a lot of us from truly centering Jesus at the center of our lives is that we truly cannot let go of the power of the, our control for our lives. The arrival of Jesus signifies that the order of our lives is going to be upended and uprooted in some way so that God's kingdom gets put on top of our kingdom. Now, I see this every single time I have to forgive someone. And I'm not talking about the forgiveness when someone comes to you and they're crying and they realize how wrong they are. And I'm like, I know you know you're wrong. Yes, you better not ever do it again. I know that you ain't never going to do it again. And there's other times where people, they don't even think they're wrong. They actually thought they were right. And inside, I'm seething with anger, and I know they're wrong, and I'm confronted with the words of Jesus in Scripture, which tells me, Jordan, forgive him. How many times do you have to forgive your enemies? Seventy times seven. And I'm like, God, this person didn't even say sorry. And it's in these moments where my kingdom, the way that I would handle things, and God's kingdom, the way that God would handle things, are in direct conflict. There's a war going on outside. No one is safe, son. You can run, but you can't hide forever. For those of you who listen to Mob Deep, that makes <laughs> perfect sense. To be in direct relationship with Jesus means handing over the power of your choosing to God. How is that easy? How is that remotely easy or, or something that we can do at the drop of a hat? Handing over the power of your decisions and your, your path to God, to a God that you've never seen at that. Now, this is also true whenever it's time for me to give uh, money. Um, oftentimes, my wife and I have a very prescribed set thing on what we will give every month, but there are some times where, for whatever reason, it's someone in need or some situation comes up, and we have to give above and beyond that. And um, I don't even want to pray those prayers, God, what do you want me to do with my money in those circumstances? Uh, because I often know that generosity is the answer. And I'm not praying for wisdom, I'm praying for courage because I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Listen, in life, there will constantly be times where your will and God's will are at direct, direct odds. And it's in these moments 
where we don't need more willpower, we need better worship. Scripture goes on um, in verses 4 through 6. If you read past this, uh, this next part, uh, you would, uh, too quickly, you would miss out completely on um, just some real gems in here. It says, so he assembled, he meaning Herod, Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this was, is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, Herod assembled all these priests, and if you miss, read over the scripture too quickly, you'll miss out on this. Uh, here's what's going on here. Out of every single person in the nation of Israel, these religious leaders, these chief priests, um, were waiting for the, the coming Messiah. And this coming Messiah was going to return to the nation of Israel the rule that they and their ancestors had been praying for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So for hundreds of years, the entire nation is praying for the arrival of this one Messiah. And now there's news that the Messiah has actually come. And when Herod, this known bully, comes to these chief priests to ask them a question, they had to be thinking in their minds, when Herod sees this person, he is going to kill him. And what do they do? They chose self-interest and self-preservation. They snitched. Jesus, he's about to be born in Bethlehem. What does the prophet say? Uh, he will be born in Bethlehem in, in Judah. They chose self-preservation and self-interest because they were fearful. They were afraid. Now, here's another obstacle to you uh, centering Jesus in, in your life. It's fear. What if this Messiah ain't all it's cracked up to be? What if I miss out on good things that I want? What if the, my financial security or personal security is given up as a result of me giving my allegiance to Jesus. Uh, years ago, I was in uh, law school, and I was the president of this thing called the Christian Legal Society. Uh, we taught Bible studies on campus, and most people on campus knew that I was a Christian, and I had been applying to law schools. And uh, there was this one class uh, that we were taking together as, as a school, and uh, everybody, for the most part, was getting A's in this class, mainly because the teacher was lazy, and he was reusing the same test every, every, every year. So the professor gave us an instruction. He said, whatever you do, do not do this test as a group assignment. You can look online. You can search Westlaw, LexisNexis. You can search whatever database you want to search until the cows come home. But do not do this as a group assignment. Literally 99.9% .9 of my classmates gathered together, passed around the answers, and they all got hundreds. One of my boys came to me and he said, Jordan, bro, like you can do this by yourself, but like why would you? There's like the answers are right, right here. And I felt in that moment, since I was known as a Christian, that, man, what am I going to do? If I cheated, I wouldn't have told this story right now, actually. <laughs> Those stories are for another sermon series. <laughs> in that moment, what was going through my mind is, Jordan, why would you just like give up something good for like integrity? Like why does it matter that much? What if this whole Jesus thing is not all that's cracked up to be and now you're going to like just basically waste all this time and energy and I ended up getting a C in that class, by the way. 
Um, I get C's, apparently. That's... Uh, but it was a fear, a legit fear of being let down. Um, now, I don't have an ending to that story. It wasn't like my classmates came to me and said, oh, Jordan, we want to worship and praise the, your Lord and Savior Jesus. Let us give our hearts to Jesus in, uh, in, in, in one fell swoop. Nobody had any response like that. They were just like, yo, you're bugging for not taking these, these answers. Since that moment in my life, I've had probably another 100 occurrences where I've wondered if the sacrifices that I was being called to make would be worth it in the end. And it was fear that sometimes prevented me from actually going in the same direction, going in the direction that God had called me to go in, to truly give Jesus this centerpiece of my life and follow him wherever he takes me, particularly when it's in a direction that I don't know the outcome to. Some of you guys right now are in a valley of decision, and you have decisions to make. There are a number of options in front of you. One of those options is one that you know is a Christ-centered option, and the other ones are more convenient. And it might be fear that's keeping you from making that decision. And what you need is not more willpower. You need better worship. Story continues in verse 7. Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, what sticks out to me about this passage, uh, especially in verse 10, is that worship uh, really is a journey in which we are led to see Jesus. Now, I don't have any tips on how you can make yourself love Jesus more. I think that's actually the antithesis of the gospel our goal in the series is not to give you a, a bunch of um, self-help improvement formulas, but rather that you and I would have our minds and our hearts and our eyes redirected towards God because you want to know what the biggest enemy that you and I have is how many times you've heard this story. Familiarity truly does breed contempt. New York City is an amazing city, probably the, the greatest city on the planet, and there are people who spend their savings from years and years of savings just to come to New York City during Christmas time. And they spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get flights, Airbnbs, and they take off vacation time just so they can go to Rockefeller Center and see the tree. And when I'm in Rockefeller Center, the only thing I'm thinking about is Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> I'm gonna get these spicy chicken sandwich. I've been to Rockefeller Center so many times, my eyes glaze over the concept. I miss out on the profundity and the beauty of all of this city has to offer, not because it's not amazing, not because it's not great, but because I'm simply too familiar. Now, the story of Christmas has that similar ring in our hearts and in our minds. Oh, we've been there, heard that, got the t-shirt, but what else can it add to my life? Now, if it's a true thing that God from all eternity had planned to arrive to this earth in the form of a human being named Jesus Christ, that that wouldn't take our that wouldn't make our minds explode with awe. 
So many times when we think about whether or not uh, we would give Christ the centerpiece of, of our lives, we don't even have a place for God there because we've heard the story so many times that we don't even pay attention to the details anymore. Every other religion in this world gives you a formula for how you need to get to God. Every philosophy, every humanist secular ideology gives you a way that you can become a better person to end this chasm between you and God. But the Christmas story is one that is better than anything that's ever been told. It's a story of God coming to us and God's coming to this broken world, broken by our own sin and choices to choose the created and worship the created over the creator. And God, who would have been fully just to sit back on the, on the bench and bang his gavel in judgment, instead of sitting back in judgment, God comes in the ultimate role reversal, and he comes to be with his people. And he himself would become the greatest, most costly, most transformational gift ever. God would take on human flesh and invade this broken world with his wisdom, power, and grace. He would do what philosophers could never conceive what leaders could never strategize, and what poets could never imagine. He would come to a broken world, and he would give himself. The sovereign king, the Lord Almighty, would live the life on our behalf that we could have never lived, die the death that you and I deserve, and rise in all power to impart wisdom to those of us who think we know better, and extend forgiveness to each one of us who seeks after him. So when the scripture writers talk about this love of God, when they talk about this person called Jesus, they surmise it by saying God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him, so that you and I would live through him, so that Jesus would be the center, the actual center of our lives. And his love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This past week, I was reading a number of articles and journals on, on worship and what it is and what it's not, and I stumbled across a quote from Henry Nouwen that uh, for a brief moment redirected my heart to the amazing grace which is found in this beautiful Christmas story. He tells us, now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me and to love me. The question is not, how am I to love God, but rather, how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. And we see in this Christmas story, God who does not sit back, but comes to us. It gives us a new vision for our lives. Now, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, uh, but one thing that I would truly, truly hope that all of us are doing in this Christmas season is spending some time pondering and trying to recapture the wonder of this beautiful story. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, you know the myriad of things that we have oriented our lives around, um, success, relationships, um, our own kingdom and our own plan. God, you know how much we struggle with our kingdom and letting go of control of our lives and fear that what if you're not all you're cracked up to be. God, I pray that we would receive just a fresh vision for who you are and that we would be led to see you as ultimate, the one who has come for us, not the other way around. And God, in that, we would be able to relinquish, God, our trust on you and replace you at the center of our lives. 
We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.